Bibles to Romans chapter 8, you see up there, we're looking at verses 31 through 34. Just a small little snippet of the text today, but <laughs> probably still too much. Uh, as you'll see, I think I bit off more than I could chew for this sermon and is going to have to break it into two parts, one for this week and one for next week. But we're going to be looking at this text, even though we can't hit all of it, we're going to read all of it. And so I'm going to ask if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word. It's one of the ways here at Vespers that we try to acknowledge that the Bible is more than just my words or your words or the words of any human being. It's the very word of God. And so if you would follow along with me as I read this for you, it's up on the screen, it's in your bulletin, or best of all, it's in your very own Bible that you mark up and you write in the margins and you treasure and you bring with you. God's word says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Thanks for standing. <laughs> I'm realizing that I gave Nathaniel a hard time for not introducing himself. And I haven't introduced myself. I'm Josh Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Vespers, along with Brian Laws, who we mentioned has been on sabbatical, but he's coming back starting tomorrow. And I've got lots of things that I'm going to ask him to do. Lots. Of, my list has just been growing ever since May. Can't wait. Oh, it's going to be so good. So the title for this sermon uh, tonight is The Question With No Answer. Um, but honestly, this was not... The first title that I had actually was going to go with initially five questions, um, which isn't fancy. The reason that was going to be the title is pretty straightforward. What we just read, those three little verses contain within them five questions. The very first thing we read, what shall we say to these things? And then the next thing, if God is for us, who can be against us? The text continues on like that with multiple questions, five of them. And so that was going to be the title for this week, but at the last minute I changed my mind and landed on this. And the reason why is because I was reading a book um, by a pastor from London years ago named John Stott. The book's called Men Made New. And <laughs> it's just been one of those days, guys. Uh, just a few minutes ago before I came up here, I looked in my bag to grab the book that I was going to open and read this quote to you. In, um, and realize that I left the book up in paradise where I preached this morning. So instead of quoting it verbatim, I'm going to do my best to paraphrase what I read in this book, which this might be a disaster, but here it goes. So John Stott says in the book, he says, the Apostle Paul lobs these questions into space, as it were, defying Anything in all creation, whether it be angels or demons, something in heaven, something in hell, something on the earth, defying them to answer these questions. But there is no answer. 
There is nothing or no one in all of creation that can threaten God's redeemed people. So he said it better than that. But that's my paraphrase. Don't tell Caleb Fleming. He, I think he's in Sunday school right now. But after he quoted from memory all of Matthew 5 a couple of weeks ago, he'd probably be embarrassed that I don't have that memorized. But so I'm reading that passage and this idea of the question that is thrown out that has no answer. It just really stuck with me. That's why I landed on this, the question with no answer. Like we said, there's five different questions in this text, but all of them are sort of underneath this big umbrella of the one big question, the one that's programmatic of the whole thing at the end of Romans 8. And it's the question that I, I heard you, Joy, saying it along with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no answer. There's exactly what just happened in the congregation here. Silence. Now, of course, you could push back on that and be like, well, Josh, the answer is nobody or no one. You know, kind of like in math when the answer is zero. Okay, fair enough. But I think it, if we thought about it like that, we would miss a big part of why this passage packs such a punch. Because it's kind of this mic drop moment when a, a question is thrown out that's so preposterous then all the people that hear it can do is just respond with silence. Imagine if you were that you're a believer in the church in Rome in the first century. You know, the people that received this letter. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter to this young, small church in Rome to encourage them, to exhort them, to train them up in godliness and righteousness. And so these Roman Christians, they come from all different backgrounds and places, but they would have been a people that knew opposition very well. Some of these Christians would have been people whose family disowned them because they were a follower of Jesus. Some of them maybe were business owners that all of a sudden had their store, their shop blacklisted and boycotted because they were a Christian and none of their customers wanted to be in business with somebody like that. They probably experienced harassment from the Roman government all the time. So much so that we know of the church in Rome that some of those early days, they would have to meet in secret in someone's home or sometimes even they'd go underground into the tombs, the catacombs, and they would worship there because they were harassed by the government so much. And so these people come together and worship and on one particular Lord's Day, they have a letter from the Apostle Paul who's written to them. And as they hear the letter read, especially as they get deep into the middle of it, they begin to hear unbelievable things about how God is for them. How Jesus the Son loved them and died for them even when they were his enemy. They hear about how God the Holy Spirit dwells within them. So much so that he is comforting them and guiding them and even interceding for them on behalf of their prayers. And then they hear about God the Father in the passage that we talked about last week. About how he has been intricately at work in their lives for long before they even existed. So that they can now with confidence say that all things that they experience and encounter work together for their good. In light of all that, 
they hear this question now. If that God is for you, who can be against you? And there's silence. No answer. And remember, these are people that experience very real, very visceral opposition each moment of each day. From a worldly perspective, we could say, well, the Roman government is against us. My family that's disowned me is against us. The customers that are boycotting my business are against us. But in light of what God has done, none of those things are real threats to them. None of those things can challenge the blessedness that they have with this God who have been described in such beautiful, profound ways in the book of Romans. If that God is for us, who can be against us? The other questions in this text, uh, the other, you know, that's the big question. And then there's other questions that follow. They're kind of are, uh, they're smaller questions, not because they're less significant, but they sort of focus on different niche things. So we have the questions, who is there to condemn? Or the question, uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Or the question, this is sort of uh, a paraphrase of it, but what is there that could possibly hinder God giving all things to those who love him? And even though those questions sort of focus on a different sort of niche subset concern, all of them share the same answer with the one big overarching question. And really what they share is that there's no answer at all. Silence. Who is to condemn? Silence. Who is there that will bring any charge against God's elect? Silence. What could possibly hinder God from graciously giving you all things as his beloved? Silence. All of those questions have the same answer. If, if God is for you, who can be against you? And that's no answer at all. Now, the structure of this passage is built on these questions with no answer. But you'll notice, if you're looking at the text that we read, or if you remember it from when we read it a moment ago, there's no, like, long pauses after each question in the text. There's no dot, 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 or, like, empty parentheses. No stage directions to say, like, sit in silence on this point. No. Immediately after each question, there's an exclamation. There's this sort of abrupt, concise, powerful uh, proclamation of a short truth. So, for instance, verse 33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That exclamation right there is what I'm talking about. Or, verse 34, Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. The, the, the structure of this passage is built around the questions, but the beauty of this passage is in those exclamations. Because it's in those short, punchy statements that we really see why it is that there is no answer to the question, if God is for you, who, you, who can be against you? The exclamations really say it all. And so that's why for the next little while, we're going to focus on some of those short, concise, exclamatory statements because that's where the beauty lies in this passage. And we're going to start off with verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Now, a little note on uh, the slides, guys, or better way of saying is the lack of the slides. This week, I purposely didn't put, like, the passage back up with underline and bold. I usually do that as we go through the different points. I'll sort of highlight the text for you guys. But I want this week you just to really focus on seeing it in your own Bibles or in your own text and kind of follow along that way. So maybe, Jess, you could put up on the screen uh, the text. So that's up there. But um, that'll just be to give you an aid to sort of see it for yourself. So verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We're going to have to do something that we've done often in Romans to kind of get to the heart of this. And that is we're going to have to imagine a courtroom scene. We're going to have to imagine that we're witnessing a trial. Because all throughout this passage, there is language that's evocative of a trial, like what we just said in verse 33, who shall bring any charge or accusation? Or even right there after that, who is to condemn? That's courtroom language. And even the word justify is very legal. It's been a while since we defined justify, probably way back a few chapters ago. So let's do it again. What we mean when we say that God justifies his people is we're saying that God has publicly and powerfully declared them to be righteous in his sight. <laughs> Amen is right, Roy. And righteous not based on their good deeds. Not based on your good deeds because guess what? You don't really have many. Your good deeds compared to God's perfect holy standard don't look that good. So, you're declared righteous, not on the basis of your good deed, but on the basis of the finished, accomplished work of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And when God applies that to you, he's able to look at you and say, you are righteous in my sight. You are holy and blameless in my sight. All that we were confessing in Colossians 1 in the creed, we are holy and blameless and complete in him. And he declares that openly and publicly so that the entire universe knows that according to him, you are deemed righteous. That's what it means here. God is the one who justifies. And in this case, he's justified those who are believers in Jesus. So let, let's keep going, though, with the definition of these courtroom terms. Now we've got... Uh, who can bring any charge against God's elect? This one's pretty simple, but maybe needs a little bit unpacking. Like, to bring a charge against somebody in a courtroom is to, there's been enough evidence gathered and presented that now we charge, we indict, we accuse them of wrongdoing. In a legal setting, it's usually because you've broken some law. So I accuse you of stealing. I accuse you of fraud. I accuse you of negligence, whatever it might be, on the basis of this evidence, that's the charge that is brought against you. But now if we think about that in sort of a, a spiritual perspective, the way that God's speaking about it in the Bible, we begin to see that the charges that can be brought against people are not just them breaking the code of the state or the country they live in. The charges brought is them breaking God's law and sinning against him. Or sometimes the charges that potentially could be brought are just simply uh, weakness and faith and belief and trust. And when we think about the charges that we might experience as Christians, we realize that we, we probably encounter this uh, many times of hearing it from people around us, society, whatever it might be, that Christians are hypocrites. 
You say and you sing one thing on Sunday and then on Wednesday, doesn't seem to be gripping you that much and you're doing the opposite. Or, or we've got the accusation of sometimes people know our struggles. They say, you promised you would never do that again. You promised God that you would repent of that and turn from it, but here you are two weeks later, falling on your face in that same habit, that same sin. Sometimes it's our past that becomes the accusation. People know about who we are in the past, or excuse me, who we were in the past. They know about the way that we hurt others, that we hurt ourselves, that we sin and cause destruction. And they bring that up to say, that's the charge against you. All that you did to bring destruction in the years long ago. Or maybe, and I'm, I'm just shooting from the hip, guys. I'm just sort of throwing out these, there's lots of different examples of this. But one that I often think of with accusation is doubt. The weakness in trusting and believing the Lord, especially when things don't look like God is in control. And I begin to doubt and question, is God really here? All these things might be the charges that are brought against us. But here's the thing. It is God who justifies. Therefore, none of those charges brought against you, none of that condemnation that it potentially could lead to, can possibly stick. I forgot to, find, to define condemnation, so let me say that real quick. Condemnation, well, let's just throw out a bunch of syn synonyms for what that could be. On the basis of these things that you're accused of, condemnation is saying that's the punishment that they deserve. They deserve to be cut off. They deserve to be disowned. They deserve to be disavowed. They deserve to be punished. They deserve hell, eternal separation from God. That's condemnation. And it comes from these charges that are brought against God's people. So let me go back and say again what I did after I realized that I hadn't defined condemnation. The text is saying that since it's God who justifies, none of those accusations against you as a believer can stick. None of them can lead to your condemnation. None of them have any real punching power. Now, certainly, you have enemies that will try to accuse you. You have enemies that will try to condemn you. What have we said uh, multiple times as we've gone throughout Romans 8? We have pointed out that there is a very particular title given to the devil, given to Satan in the scripture. What is it? That's right. The accuser. The accuser of the brethren. 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 <laughs> Revelations 12. Satan's whole identity is built around being the one that stirs up and draws out your failures and your brokenness and sin and uses it to accuse you. And uses it to accuse you before God and saying, how could you possibly love them or redeem them? That's what the devil's all about. Certainly he tries to bring charges against you and condemn you. And then there's the world around you, people you know, acquaintances, coworkers, neighbors, sometimes it's even your friends and your family. They will highlight your failures and not always because they're trying to lovingly correct you or call you to repentance. That's necessary. That's good. But sometimes the people you know, they'll highlight your failures for the sake of saying you deserve to be condemned. How could you possibly think you could be one of God's children? 
And last but not least, there is the person that is tirelessly working to constantly stir up your failures, accuse you, and make you feel condemned. That person does it night and day. Who is it that I'm talking about? I already mentioned Satan. I'm thinking of somebody else here. You. Sometimes you, yourself, are your biggest accuser. And the one that looks deep into your failures and your brokenness and your sin and cannot let it go. Constantly bringing it to your own attention and saying, I don't deserve any good. Which is true, none of us deserve good. But by the grace of God, he gives it. You sometimes are your biggest accuser. So this trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are constantly trying to bring charge against you and to lead, have that lead to condemnation. But remember, the text is saying they can't do it. They can't succeed. None of it sticks because, we'll say it again, it is God who justifies. Now, notice the wording of that. The focus is on the God who justifies. It didn't just say because you are justified, which would have been really cool. It would have been great. That would still have been a beautiful verse. You know, who is there to condemn? You are justified. Yay. But no, what they say instead, what Paul says instead, if who can bring any charge against God's elect, it is God who justifies. Meaning that what he wants you to see here is the character of the one who has justified you. The power and the authority of God who is above all, therefore, there is no appeal. He is the highest word. He is the final say. When he says that you are justified, that's it. Close the book on it. When I've, uh, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but sometimes I, I, I find uh, videos of, of uh, court TV and trials that are going on. Not, not a lot. You guys are looking at me like, this is weird. Now, just every now and then I'll see, especially like press conferences after a trial, when they're doing sort of the post-mortem on what happened and what the verdict is. And I've noticed over the years that it used to be that, like, the, say, the prosecutor uh, of a trial that lost the case, they would say things on the line, uh, along the lines of, like, oh, we respect the decision of the court. We disagree with it, obviously, but that's what the court says, or we're going to abide by the decision of the court. Now, though, they're saying something different. More often than not, a prosecutor, when they ask him what they think about the verdict, will say, see you at appeal. What does that mean? It means that they're not accepting the decision of the court. They just plan to immediately appeal to a higher court. And if they don't get the decision they like from that court, they're going to appeal to a court above that. And then if they don't get the decision they like from that one, they'll keep going and going and going until at least in the U.S. legal system, the final say is the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I'm not knocking the appeal system. It's a really good thing for us as human beings to know that if we don't get a fair trial, we can appeal that. And yet it seems like that's a lot of times how people think about any verdict in any trial is I'll just keep appealing it and trying it in a different court until I get the result that I like. Not here, though. 
God, the one that has declared the verdict that you are justified, that you are declared righteous, is the highest authority in all the universe. Meaning, there is no one else to appeal to. There is no higher court to go above him. There is no way that your accusers can say, um, I think I'll get another judge and, and take my chances there. No. God's decision is final, and the decision that he has made for you in Christ is that you are justified. You are declared righteous. You are holy and blameless in his sight, and no matter what your accusers or opponents say about you, nothing can take that from you. That's the final verdict. So when the text here says specifically, it is God who justifies, it's making you realize that the one who has justified you is the final say. There is no appeal. There is no higher court. You've got the highest court of all the cosmos saying, God is for you. Who is there to condemn? Who is there to bring any charge against God's elect? No one because there ain't an appeal process to do anymore. It's finished. So, one more thing that I wanna add to this before we kinda close up for today, and it's this. <laughs> I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'm gonna ask you as a listener to now pretend for a moment, just pretend that all that I just said about there being no appeal Pretend that that's not true. Pretend, just hypothetically, that there was a possibility for this case to be tried again. Not because there's a, a higher God above the triune God, but just because he's like, okay, let's start over. Let's wipe the slate clean. Let's present all the evidence again. Let's argue the cases, and then I'll make my verdict after all of that. I know it's crazy for me as a pastor to say like, hey, the point that I just made, pretend it's not true for a while. <laughs> but you know, hopefully you'll see where I'm going with this. So if that happened, if there was a new trial, if everything was done again and, and the case was going to be decided, your fate hangs in the balance once more as God, the righteous judge, hears it all. My question to you is this, should you be nervous? Should you be worried if your case was retried before God. I know my questions to the congregation sometimes aren't the clearest. Sometimes they come out more like riddles. <laughs> but perhaps you're thinking about that and stirring on it, and, and here's my answer to that question. I'd actually say you should not be worried. You don't have to be. And here's the reason why. It doesn't matter how many times this trial is redone, how many times it's appealed. Could be five times, could be five million times. The fact of the matter is you will always have the Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, hearing the case and saying, I've already been condemned on their behalf. Try the case as many times as you like. The fact still remains, Jesus has paid it all. Verse 34, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us even now. Do you realize that the death and resurrection of Christ, it was, it was taking 
the condemnation that all your accusers, whether it be the world, the flesh, or the devil, whether it be all that the devil throws in your face, all that you stir up from your own past, whatever it might be, Jesus has received all those accusations on himself and he was condemned in your place. He died on the cross, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was humiliated. He suffered in ways that we can't even imagine. The eternal son of God that had been in constant fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit from all eternity, for that moment on the cross, said, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about condemnation. He received it. He went through it for you. And so now, as he stands at the right hand of the judge, God the Father, he says, bring it on. Whatever accusation you have, devil, whatever accusation you want to lob at my beloved people, oh world, I've already done it. I've already received it. I've already paid for it. You want condemnation? Fine. I received it in myself and never forget it. Do you realize that when Jesus rose again from the dead, even in his blessed resurrected body, he still has the scars of the wounds he bore on the cross? His hands, his feet, his side. And that actually leads to one of my favorite of all time hymns. It's by Charles Wesley. It's called Arise, My Soul, Arise. And the whole hymn is about the intercession of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And there's one line in it that is so powerful because it uses this metaphor to imagine that the wounds of Jesus are speaking. And the line goes like this. I, don't worry, I'm not gonna sing it for you. It says, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour out effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. They say, forgive him, oh, forgive Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. No matter what accusation is brought against God's people, Jesus is there right by the judge saying, do you remember these wounds? These wounds are because I've already paid for this. I've already received that condemnation that the prosecutor is calling for. I've redeemed those people already. No one can take them from me. Why is it that these questions have no answer? Why is it that they just result in silence? It's because Jesus paid it all. When you shout out who is there to condemn, there's no answer. Guys, you'll notice that um, well, I didn't even touch verse 32, which is my favorite in all of this that we've been talking about. Uh, it's the one of the first verses that I ever memorized as a Christian. And so earlier this week, I was sort of structuring this sermon. I was like, oh, I'll just talk for a little bit about condemnation and the accusation. That'll just be five minutes, and then I'll, then I'll really spend all my time on verse 32. Well, that didn't really work out like a plan. Had a lot more to say on the other parts, and so I'm out of time. So what I'm going to do is save um, a sort of reflection on that other question in verse 32 until next week. There's going to be a part two of this sermon. 
Which, by the way, like all the, the good preachers, the one that have like podcasts and stuff like that, they all get to do like part one, part two, part three sermons. So throw me a bone. Let me do that once and just pretend I'm one of those preachers, okay? And we'll do it next week. But I am going to say this before we end and go into the Lord's Supper. This really sort of stirred up in me as I was driving up to paradise this morning. We're about to take the Lord's Supper in a second. And one of the things that we always do is we invite you to come and partake and eat if you're a believer in Jesus following him. We say that because the Bible makes it very clear that this meal is for those who have accepted and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that if you were to take this meal as someone that's not a believer and who doesn't have faith, the Bible actually says you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And we don't want that for you or for anybody. And so we always make that distinction. And yet today what I'm thinking as we come into it, instead of hearing that as like an exclusionary statement, maybe today some of you will hear it as an invitation. You'll say, I, I'm not a believer in Jesus. I just am here because my friend dragged me to church for some reason. Or perhaps maybe you're somebody that's been at church for a long time, but you know that deep down you're just going along with it. You're just going with the flow. But you've never truly from the heart said, Jesus, you're my Lord. When we serve the supper today, maybe this is your chance to hear that call that this table is only for believers and to say, I want that. I want to be a follower of Jesus, and I want taking this meal to be my first act of Christian obedience. And the reason why I'm thinking about this is because I'm reflecting on this text, and I'm noticing how all these questions, who is there to condemn? Who is there to bring a charge against God elect? If God is for us, who can be against us? All of those things are unanswerable questions if you're a believer in Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, if you haven't, grasp him in faith, then these questions do have an answer. They have lots of answers, and they're scary. For the one that hasn't been justified by believing the gospel and following Jesus, when Paul asks who is there to condemn, the answer is there are lots of things to condemn you. Your sin, your brokenness, the way that you've hurt people. When Paul says, who is there to bring a charge against you? The answer is, there are lots of people to give a charge against you. All that you've hurt and wounded, your very own self that knows by conscience that you've uh, broken the law of God. My point is here that this passage is sweet to those who know Jesus and they hear, if God is for you, who can be against you? And the answer is nobody. But for those who don't know Jesus, this passage is scary. And I don't want anybody in this place hearing this to walk away with that hanging over their head of saying, there are lots to condemn me. There are lots to accuse me. There are lots that are against me. It doesn't have to be that way. Today is the day of salvation. And when you hear me at the table say, this meal is only for believers, perhaps that is your call. That is the Lord drawing you and inviting you to say, I am a believer. I do believe this. I love Jesus. I want to follow him. And I want to be able to read this passage and hear these questions and say, there's no answer. If God is for me, 
who can be against God? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table now, I pray that you would bless these elements, this bread, this juice, Lord, to be a true testimony to your grace for us. And as we taste it, that it would preach the gospel to all of our senses. And we would know deep down the depths of your great love for your people. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to have.